Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and we have a lot to talk about today as the civil conflict within the Caliphate boils over into war once again. It won't be as easy for the Hashemite Caliph this time around though. Unlike the Meccan faction, the Syrians were led by a single Qurayshi chief, and he was a capable Umayyad Dahiyya with an experienced army and a bone to pick. As the Ummah's unity began to crumble, old social dynamics resurfaced, and we will spend some time introducing these so that we can better understand the budding conflict in episode 14, The First Fitna. Before we begin, I wanted to remind listeners that we are still on controversial grounds, in the sense that there are many narrations about these events and they don't really agree on all the details, so I'm still giving you my take on what I've read. You should already be used to this, consensus is a rare thing among the surviving narrations in Arab oral history. Another thing I'm sure you've noticed by now is that things have really kicked up a notch since the third caliph's murder in the capital, and indeed the Arabs will come to refer to roughly all the disunity that ensued as the first fitna. The term fitna translates as sedition or civil strife, but it has many other connotations in Arabic and I will keep that wider discussion for the glossary. I only mention it because, as you can probably tell from the word first, it will occur again and again over the course of our podcast. The battle we are about to discuss was the most important of this confusing and transformative period for the caliphate, and by far its deadliest. So, we ended last time with the caliph deciding to reside in Kufa while he tried to bring the Syrians back into the fold. But before we get into the conflict between Syria and Iraq, we need to take a look at Egypt. As long as the caliph controlled Egypt and Iraq, he had Syria surrounded, and Muawiyah could not realistically hope to beat his forces back on both fronts. Adi had picked the popular and capable Qais ibn Abada to govern Egypt, and the new governor had reached an understanding with some pro-Othmanid folks, whereby they withdrew to Alexandria and promised not to cause any trouble until they were good and ready to pledge their allegiance to Adi as the new caliph. Meanwhile, Muawiyah had fellow Dahiya Amr ibn al-As on his side. Egypt's conqueror and first Arab governor had a perpetual obsession with regaining the province, and he was constantly reminding Muawiyah that his first move ought to be about dealing with its support for the caliph. He did a lot more for the Umayyad cause though, and almost all our sources credit him with managing the Syrian propaganda effort to prepare popular sentiment for a war against other Muslims. Since his arrival, the public eulogizing of Uthman, common after prayers, gave way to cursing his killers, then those who helped them, and finally to naming and cursing each of Ali's governors and commanders, including the caliph himself. Now remember, these oral histories do terribly during controversial times, so it's pretty hard to make sense of the timeline. Some narrations are convinced of Ali's guilt and say he was cursed the moment Uthman was killed, others that Ahmad had nothing to do with it, etc. Describing some of the elaborate stories we have about Ahmad in Damascus at this time isn't really worth it. There is a nice one of him duping a revered local hermit into excitedly cursing Ali at the mosque, but now's the time when he's really making good on that reputation as a Dahiya is all you need to know. So now that things were getting heated, Muawiyah took Amr's advice and the two resorted to the war which Arab Duhat preferred the best, a war of words. There are many letters between Qais and Muawiyah quoted in the sources, and it is at times difficult to tell which are authentic and which are fabricated. 
We're told that Muawiyah started with threats and Qais, who comes off as both eloquent and disdainfully angry, replied with the same. Muawiyah tried bribes and Qais hit back with some fierce insults. Using appeals to tribal honor and righteous vengeance did nothing to sway the new governor, who seemed confident in his position and conduct. Sensing that the letters were going nowhere, the Duhat resorted to a more resourceful stratagem. Muawiyah had made no secret of the correspondence between Fustat and Damascus, and after the last letter arrived from Qais, Syrian preachers were suddenly asked to no longer curse Qais at the mosque nor imply his association with Uthman's killers in any way. Rumors began to emerge, no doubt encouraged by the wily Duhat, about a secret pact between Qais and Muawiyah, and it was not long before these rumors reached the ears of those around Ali bin Abi Talib. It was his cousin and latest governor of Basra, Abdullah ibn Abbas, who first fell for this 7th century version of fake news, telling the caliph that he believed Qais had been compromised. Muawiyah had apparently been sending letters to everyone in a position of power, Abdullah included. While I didn't get into this during the Battle of the Camel, some of the explanations for why al-Zubayr suddenly left the battle before it began claim it was because of something Muawiyah had said in a letter of his, but the details are a bit convoluted so let's not get into them further. The point is, Muawiyah knew what Arabs needed to hear to spur them into action, and he had no problem piling compliments, threats, or promises into his letters. Abdullah had heard about Qais going easy on the pro-Othmanid remnants in Egypt, he'd heard about the letters going back and forth between Fustat and Damascus, and now he was being told that Qais was no longer a propaganda target at Syrian mosques. He repeatedly asked Ali to remove Qais before he flipped, and to replace him with someone even closer and more trusted. The caliph did not give credence to these rumors at first, but as the chorus denouncing Qais around him grew, he sent his young stepson Muhammad bin Abi Bakr to Fustat. He was to hand Qais a letter from Ali summoning him to Kufa and then to replace him as governor. There is a lot of disagreement on the timeline, which I've noticed begins to spike every time we discuss Egypt, and the best estimate I can provide is February of 657. I had a hard time believing this gambit worked when I first read about it, but it's pretty well attested to, at least by early Arab historical standards. Muawiyah's letters will continue to feature in our story, and while they won't always work so effectively, they will at least be consistent in their aims. Most authors see Amr's hands in this masterful bit of manipulation, and he is considered to have been the truly resourceful one in the Syrian camp. Muawiyah was a learned man who used words to achieve his aims, but his methods were limited to bribes, threats, and theatrical displays of religiosity. His reputation as a dahiya was more bluster than substance, but with Amr by his side the two could do some real damage, and their alliance was beginning to pay off handsomely for the Syrian camp. It is time to introduce a new dynamic to our already complicated story. I've been trying not to overwhelm listeners with too many details, but there is no avoiding this discussion, and while it will be most relevant later on, it already wields some explanative power by this point in our story. If you have an excellent memory, you may remember that towards the end of the very first episode, I mentioned that the Arabs broadly thought of themselves as falling into two categories, northern or southern, known to them by tribal lineages as Adnani or Qahtani. Here's the rough idea. According to Arab lore, all the Arabs are descendants of the biblical prophet Abraham, and Adnan and Qahtan were two of his many grandsons. Qahtan went south to Yemen, where his descendants flourished as a settled people, building dams for agriculture and so on. Adnan instead chose to stay in the desert surrounding the shrine built by his ancestors, the Kaaba, and thus he fathered the nomadic desert Arabs. Now things weren't perfectly clear-cut, 
One of Adnan's children goes and lives down in the Yemen, and Qahtan's descendants keep spilling out into the desert regularly. But basically, if you, and maybe more importantly your roots, were nomadic all the way through, then you were probably a northern Arab, Adnani. If your lifestyle included towns, some foreign religion, agriculture, or cousins down in the Yemen, then chances are you were Qahtani. The Ghassanids and Lakhmids that inhabited Syria and Iraq respectively before Islam were both considered Qahtani Arabs. It didn't matter that they were geographically further north than the supposed northern Arabs. The Arabs traced the ancestry of these tribal confederacies up to Qahtan as their lifestyles were less nomadic and therefore automatically Qahtani. Despite having been united by their new faith, these differences remained relevant to the Arabs, and they were about to resurface now that Islamic unity was ebbing. Going forward, I will refer to the two factions as Adnani and Qahtani, though I will still use Yemeni to refer to the Qahtanis from the south of the Arabian Peninsula. One way the Adnanis were already preferred over the Qahtanis was through Uthman's many marriages. I mentioned how the caliph had utilized the institution of marriage primarily in its tribal function, using it to tie himself to most of the prominent and influential Arab tribes. As Adnani himself, it was only natural that fellow Adnani tribes loomed larger in his mind, and they benefited more than their Qahtani counterparts. Uthman's marriages to Yemeni Arabs were limited, as he only bothered establishing ties with their biggest and most noble tribes. He had given one of his daughters in marriage to Al-Ash'ath bin Qais, the Yemenite tribal chief of the Kinda, whom he also placed in charge of securing the tribute around Azerbaijan. We mentioned Al-Ash'ath towards the end of our last episode, but he will play a much bigger part in things today, so try to keep him in mind. He was the head of the main Qahtani tribe, which once upon a time had led the old confederacy protecting the state of Hamyar, so think of him as the ultimate Yemeni tribal chief. Apart from Al-Ash'ath, however, few Yemenites felt any kinship with the fallen caliph, and they now largely supported Ali bin Abi Talib. Some sources say that Al-Ash'ath was tempted to join Muawiyah when the Syrian governor wrote him, promising to make him lord of the Yemenites, but after considering it, he realized that his men could not be asked to stray from Ali's camp due to the growing enmity between Qahtani and Adnani tribes. I already mentioned that the Arab tribes around Syria were all considered Qahtani, and due to his position as governor of the province, it was important for Muawiyah to make allies of these local power bases. He married a daughter of the tribal leader of Kelb, a Christian tribe that had been a fixture in the Syrian landscape since before Islam. Like many local Monophysites, they had stayed neutral when the Muslims conquered the land, and now felt free of the increasingly oppressive practices of the Byzantine state or church. One final comment on this dynamic before we get back to our story. Last time I told you that the man Ali first sent to Muawiyah was a friend of the Syrian governor, the idea being that maybe he'd set aside his claims to vengeance and join the Ummah if the request came from a trusted source. While that man failed, and upon his return, Madik al-Ashtar openly complained to the caliph that he wished he'd have sent him instead, because only a man like him could have dealt with Muawiyah. What's being said here is only helpfully broken down in a couple of sources, and it reveals the impact this adnani qahtani split was already having on tribal allegiances. Malik al-Ashtar wasn't any Qahtani, he was a kind of Qahtani superstar, and even the men loyal to Qahtani tribal chiefs like al-Ash'ath bin Qais looked up to Malik and took pride in his fierceness. If Ali had sent him to Muawiyah instead, the governor would have been put in a position of weakness, as hurting Malik would have cost him all but his closest Qahtani allies. It was a missed opportunity, however. Now that Ali's messenger had gone back and forth with no resolution, the idea that these two men were somehow peers, each with a legitimate reason to go to war, had begun to take hold. 
Okay, after this long and important aside, let us now return to our narrative. While the previous caliphs could issue orders and have all the different tribes collaborate and compete to fulfill their commands, things were much more fractious now, and Muawiyah and Ali had to appeal to tribal chiefs individually. Those who had already pledged their allegiance to either of the two contenders could be relied upon to fight for them, but the largest tribes spanned and fractured across both Iraq and Syria, with each handful of clans following a leader from among them. Muawiyah and Ali now reached out to all of these tribes, and in the sources we sometimes find quotes from the letters they wrote. Muawiyahs are about 90% bribes and promises, the rest being either threats or emotional appeals to honor or glory. Ali's letters feel more like sermons, with his requests couched in terms of moral or religious duty. This contrast will become a recurring theme. Muawiyah had no problem promising sticks and carrots, whereas Ali would remind the addressed that their real sticks and carrots would await them in the afterlife. After calling on all the men they could muster, the two powerful elders of Quraysh were ready to face one another. Muawiyah had nothing to gain by leaving his lands, so it was Ali who planned the offensive. His armies would follow the Euphrates northwards and then cross west into Syrian lands. The first obstacle Ali's troops encountered was crossing the massive river. The town of Raqqa was under Syrian control and its inhabitants feared potential reprisals if they allowed the caliph's armies to cross. Sympathetic to their plight, Ali ordered his men to keep marching until they found another crossing point. Catching up with them a short while later, we are told that Malik was enraged at how casually these nobodies had dismissed their caliph. He took some horsemen, returned to the town, and threatened that he would leave nothing standing if they didn't set up their bridge for the prophet's cousin immediately. He didn't need any of the colorful threats he deployed. His name was already infamous in Syria. The people of Raqqa bound all their boats and rafts together, forming the bridge which they had denied the caliph, and Madik retrieved the rest of the army to cross over. It seems that Muawiyah's forces first saw Ali's armies while they were crossing the river around Raqqa. There were no immediate confrontations, but the Syrian armies now began to mass in nearby Safin. They used their home field advantage to pick where the battle would take place, made camp, and waited for the caliph's armies to arrive. The location they chose was by a tributary to the Euphrates, but it only had a single strip where groups could safely access the fresh water. There are numerous reports that Muawiyah's armies tried to keep Ali's troops from accessing the water supply. Few sources adopt an it's-all-fair-and-love-and-war attitude, and most consider it a cowardly and un-Islamic move. For their part, the Iraqi armies were not as well-rested as their adversaries and definitely did not expect this near-scandalous type of hostility. Malik al-Ashtar's rage once again took the driver's seat, except this time he was joined by the Yemeni tribal lord al-Ash'ath bin Qais, who was maybe starting to get jealous of all the admiration Malik inspired in other Qahtani Arabs. The two led their men in battle against the Syrians guarding the water and dispersed them before long. Now that the Iraqis were in charge of the only watering hole, we get another example of Ali's idealistic leadership. He declared to his troops that the men they were fighting were Muslims, and that they were to be treated as such. No taking hostages, no looting, no chasing down men who surrendered or turned away, and definitely no barring anyone from access to water. He was, after all, the caliph, successor to the prophet, sent to lead even these men who drew their swords in his face. Now who knows? I mean, these are oral histories, and I think it's wise to become suspicious whenever a certain motif begins to emerge. It makes sense to me that the Muslims telling this story, hundreds of years later, wanted to impart a moral upon it. 
I mean, what a missed opportunity if we don't at least get a clear lesson out of this all-important confrontation. Expectations like these can only distort an oral narration with time, and oral histories have a way of buckling under major events, as different observers give their own take on the past. They are rich in one sense and useless in another, but this is what you have to work with if you're into Arab history. Another thing the oral testimony collected in the classical Arab sources is not fit for at all is war. You may have noticed that I am often vague when it comes to details about the battles the Arabs fought in, but that is not all on me. The sources don't provide a lot to work with. To quote Professor Hugh Kennedy's commentary on these battles in his book The Armies of the Caliphs, quote, The Muslim sources give us a very extensive account of the military operations involved, but as usual, there is a vast amount of information about individuals and their doings and sayings, but only fragmentary information about the raising and management of armies, end quote. When I first read his book, years ago, I was disappointed at how little detail was in it, but after going through some of the classical sources myself, I was truly impressed at how he had managed to glean enough out of them to write a book on the subject. There is just so little for such a martial people. Arab narratives about these wars tend to focus on naming the tribes and leaders involved, the fights they engaged in, and the poetry they came up with or, more likely, was attributed to them later on. There is no description of the battlefield, little to no mention of overall strategy or tactics employed, and worst of all, no accounts of total troop numbers or formations. The way the Arabs recalled their history makes it clear how tribal they remained at this stage. Most sources agree that Muawiyah had a slight advantage in size. The scale of this advantage is hard to determine, but to give you an idea, some narrations size the armies at 60,000 on either side, while others go as high as 120,000 for Adi and 300,000 for Muawiyah. Adi pretty much monopolized the support coming from the earliest and most prominent Muslims, men who had witnessed the Ummah's earliest battles under the Prophet himself, and those who were there to defend the faith during Muhammad's final wars. Anyone with strong Muslim credentials had long ago declared for Adi. The skirmish over the water must have taken place sometime around April or May, and hostilities would not begin for another few months. Despite everything that had happened so far, reluctance to spill Muslim blood was still widespread. There are descriptions of the many envoys sent back and forth between Muawiyah and Adi, what they said and how they reacted. Adi maintained that those most faithful to Muhammad's vision of Islam had chosen him to lead the community, while Muawiyah insisted that Adi was harboring Uthman's killers and shielding them from justice. Amr ibn al-As played an important role in these negotiations. He was Muawiyah's key advisor and essentially managed the Syrian response. At the end of the day, Muawiyah wanted to remain governor of all of Syria, something which Adi could not accept. Before moving on to the fighting, I just want to note that some of the most orthodox Sunni histories, which like to stress how the earliest Muslims were united at heart, often report that the two Qurayshis almost reached a peace deal but that the same extremists who had killed Uthman worried that peace would mean that they would be punished, and so they started the fighting themselves. This is such an outlandish proposition that I don't think I need to point out any of its many flaws. It's just another extension of the same, the early Muslims were the best, most united generation ever, apologist line of thinking. I won't bore you with the details of the failed negotiations either. But after a hundred or so days of trying to end things peacefully came the deadliest battle the Muslims had known so far. Just like in previous Arab wars, the fighters gathered by tribe, and before full engagements there was a lot of poetry and some duels to rally morale. If I had taken the time to describe the Prophet's generation, a whole genre in Islamic literature, 
we would be in episode 100 and you would truly be able to appreciate how epic this war was. Everyone was there, fighting along and against their many children from everyone else's daughters. Famous leaders on Ali's side are Malik al-Ashtar, of course, Al-Ammar bin Yasir, who I'll say more about shortly, Qais ibn Abada, and Ali's three sons. Muawiyah had a larger contingent of famous Muslims on his side, as his was the side of the elite. Now remember, the best and most famous Muslims were all either dead or on Ali's side, but their children, the children of these notable Qurayshi men, were more often on Muawiyah's. And so there we find Abdurrahman ibn Abi Bakr, Ubaidullah ibn Umar, and Abdurrahman ibn Khalid ibn al-Walid. Generally speaking, the days started with dawn prayers, after which the men of each tribe or clan would gather and psych themselves up with battle cries, poetry, and banner waving. Leading men from either side would face each other in one-on-one -on -one combat with their kin cheering them on, and in the first few days of the battle, these duels would grow into larger skirmishes without ever devolving into an all-out war. Fighting would end with the setting sun, and members of either side would go back to the battlefield to retrieve their dead for burial. Most sources agree that the Iraqi armies heeded Ali's word to treat their opponents as Muslims and only fought them on the battlefield. The Syrians, however, had been told that they were fighting the destroyers of their caliphate and showed no such consideration to the Iraqis. They are especially faulted in our sources for ambushing the Iraqis while they were retrieving their dead at night. Things really heated up in late July, and the last three days of this war were so bloody that some sources set them aside as the real battle. It's unclear which of the following two events took place first, but they both contributed to pushing the war towards its conclusion. The first was Ali reorganizing his armies, asking every tribe to stand and face its Syrian kin. This brought intra-tribal enmities into the mix, which made the fighting more personal for all involved and led to some epic showdowns and tragic poetry. The second event concerns a prophecy made by the Prophet himself, years ago finally coming true. So far I have kept a lot of magical reasoning out of this podcast, but this specific prophecy is so widely reported that I felt ignoring it would be cutting you short, so here it is. It's about Lamar ben Yasser, who truly was a unique figure in early Islam and it's a real shame we don't have a lot of time to give him. The Prophet had once told Ammar that he would die at war. But it wasn't just any war, it was a war in which it was difficult to tell who was fighting on the right side. The prophecy concluded that the killers of Ammar would be the unjust party. About a week into the Battle of Safin, the nearly 90-year-old Ammar, yeah, I know, I doubt he was that old too, was killed leading some of Ali's forces, and everyone started repeating this apparently widely known prophecy. When Muawiyah and Amr heard about his death, the two Duhat immediately realized the impact it could have on Syrian morale, and we are told that Ahmad asked a commander to address the troops and tell them that it was Ali who had killed Ammar by bringing the old man to war in the first place. The detail is mentioned in many narrations and often ridiculed for its contorted logic. Ammar's death saddened Ali greatly, demoralized the Syrians, who up to this point thought they were defending the Ummah by insisting on justice for the caliph's murderers, and it sent the Iraqis into a frenzy. Adi had made it clear over a month earlier that he would prefer to face Muawiyah in single combat to spilling Muslim blood, and after Ammar's death, he repeated his challenge to the Syrian governor. For a while, both armies thought it was a good idea, and Muawiyah had a more difficult time dodging the offer, and he merely said that he didn't know of anyone who had fought Adi and lived. Luckily for him, he managed to retreat from the spotlight after some hothead from his army, who had been trash-talking about Ammar, said he'd relish the chance to fight Adi. It wasn't much of a fight, 
We're told Ali cleft the man in two, and when that loser's cousin stepped up to avenge him right afterwards, he lost his life as well. Ali may not have unsheathed his sword since the Prophet's death, but he still knew how to use it. It's a nice scene from this narration, but cinematic enough to become suspicious. On the penultimate day of the battle, the fighting was so intense that both sides are said to have run out of spears and arrows, and everyone was now fighting with their swords. Some line had been crossed by this point, because the two sides did not stop fighting when the sun had set. They fought all through the night, and by early morning Malik al-Ashtar, who had played a huge role fighting this war for Ali, was beating the Syrians back to just a short walk away from their governor's tent. Muawiyah must have realized he had lost the war around then, but luckily for him, his now trusted advisor Amr ibn al-As had an idea that in his words, quote, could only unite our ranks and divide theirs. He sent orders that all Syrian warriors should rip pages out of any available copies of scripture, impale them on the tips of their swords or spears, and then they should wave them high and wide, declaring to their fellow Muslims, let God's word decide between us. I know this sounds strange, but we covered something vaguely similar to this last time. Before his battle against the Meccan faction in Basra, Ali had a young man stand between the two armies and read aloud from the Qur'an as an attempt to unite the warring sides under their common faith. I'm just speculating here, but Amr may have reasoned that his latest gambit was similar enough to make it seem hypocritical of Ali to turn it down. I mean, if the Caliph had once said that the Qur'an could resolve matters between two armies, he couldn't just turn around and deny it now, right? Anyway, I'm sure you'll agree that it's one thing to appeal to faith before a battle, and an entirely different thing to do so after what we are told were literally days of vicious, non-stop fighting. I sympathize with you if you're still confused, but nobody was more confused by this than Malik al-Ashtar. He was at the vanguard of the Iraqi troops, mere hours from breaching the Syrian position once and for all, when a panicked messenger from Ali suddenly appeared, ordering him to stop fighting and to return to the Caliph's side. When he got there, he was greeted by the surreal sight of scores of Ali's own troops surrounding the caliph with their swords drawn, practically holding the man hostage. Amr's gambit had worked beyond all expectations. Ali's armies weren't merely divided, but a majority of his troops were now threatening the caliph with violence if he did not submit to the arbitration being proposed by the Syrians. Ali pleaded with his subjects to listen to him telling them that there was no chance that Muawiyah and Amr had any interest in what the Qur'an had to say about anything, that they were just cynically using the holy word as an excuse to escape defeat. But apparently, only Amr ibn al-As knew how to sway Arab minds, as Ali's troops would no longer heed his command. This was a terrible turn of events for Ali, but maybe not all was lost. Maybe this was just a weird, face-saving surrender. Surely, if Ali and Muawiyah debated the matter in front of the armies, it would be clear for all to see whose claim the Qur'an supported. After all, Ali's knowledge and mastery of Islamic jurisprudence was quite literally unmatched. He was THE judge in Medina, ever since the Prophet's passing, and people came to him for help determining what the right thing to do was. Amr's craftiness became more fully apparent as details of the proposed arbitration came four days later and any hopes of quickly trumping Muawiyah in a public debate vanished. Amr and a few hundred from his side met the Iraqis, and he delivered to them the following proposal. Each side would pick someone to make its case, and the two would meet next Ramadan, about seven months later, in a place equidistant from Kufa and Damascus to determine who would lead the Ummah. In the meantime, Muawiyah would continue to govern Syria, and Ali and his troops would have to return to Iraq. 
Take note of the intentional symmetry being crafted. The whole proposal is basically couched around how the two have equal claim to leadership. Another less noticeable innovation was the subtle distancing of Muawiyah and Ali from the issue at hand by framing it as a conflict between the Syrians and the Iraqis, as if those two couldn't decide who should lead the community. This definitely worked to Muawiyah's favor, as it made his unfavorable contrast to the Prophet's cousin less relevant to the matter at hand. Also, the Syrians were actually united, and as they had been for decades now, whereas the Iraqis were just the tribes recently put together by the new caliph, and fighting on his side was one of the few things that they all agreed upon. Now this is a ridiculous offer, no? Nobody in their right mind would accept it. Adi would have to be insane to say yes. Which is why this offer was not made to Adi, but to the Iraqis. And who was to say who represented the Iraqis? Al-Ash'ath bin Qais, the Yemeni tribal leader of the Kinda was there, and he is said to have immediately accepted this offer. Not only did he accept it, and Amr ibn al-As as a Syrian representative, but he also unilaterally declared that no other than the previous governor of Kufa, Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, would serve as a representative for the Iraqis. It is clear that by this point, Ali's position had been severely compromised. The caliph argued that since he was being forced into this arbitration, he should at least be allowed to pick his representative, and that he favored his cousin, Abdullah ibn al-Abbas. Abu Musa wasn't even on Ali's side. He had stopped the Kufans from responding to his calls to organize and meet him to fight the Battle of the Camel against the Meccan faction. It was exactly this behavior that al-Ash'ath now cited as the reason why he wanted Abu Musa to represent the Iraqis. Because he was the one who had originally warned of the dangers of infighting between Muslims, his position had been vindicated now that everyone was exhausted from war. When Ali suggested Malik al-Ashtar represent him instead, al-Ash'ath flew off the handles and laid the blame for everything on Malik, saying that it was because of him all this had come to pass, a very pro-Muawiyah statement to make. It is clear to me, at least, that the tribal leader resented his diminished influence in Ali's camp, and was especially threatened by the prominence of Qahtani superstar Malik al-Ashtar. His eagerness to play a leading part in this unexpected closing chapter of the war betrays how much he missed being in control. Even if it meant making enormous concessions to the Syrians, he was just happy to be calling the shots once again. The behavior of al-Ash'ath bin Qais in this battle made him a reviled figure in Shi'i histories. Unlike the Hashemite caliph, Muawiyah reached out to any prominent leaders on his opponent's side regularly, always trying to get them to flip with promises of great rewards. It is therefore quite reasonable to conclude that a tribal lord like al-Ash'ath was especially susceptible to Muawiyah's promises, but I think there's more to it than that. Tribal lords had the most to lose from a non-tribal caliphate, and Ali's idealism was obviously going to lead the ummah down that path. Muawiyah, on the other hand, behaved very much like a tribal lord himself, and his ascension to leadership would have also jeopardized al-Ash'ath's power in the long run, especially considering his close ties to rival Qahtanis like the Christian Kelb tribe of Syria. I believe that al-Ash'ath's intervention was meant to weaken both sides. By keeping the stronger faction from defeating the other, he could maintain his influence as a powerful tribal leader. Al-Ash'ath prepared his loyalists and allies to accept Amr's gambit by repeatedly complaining about both Adi and Muawiyah, and he's often quoted lamenting how there would be nobody to defend Arab wives and daughters from the Persians and Byzantines should their armies return while they fought. It is a valid point, but it underscores how fragile Arab unity remained and how it still struggled against the entrenched interests of the old tribal elite. 
The most widely reported estimates I have found for the Battle of Safin puts the total mortality at a staggering 70,000, 45,000 Syrians and 25,000 Iraqis. Its consequences will haunt the Arabs in one form or another for pretty much the rest of this podcast, and while the most capable caliphs will manage to reunite the Ummah, its divisions will run too deep for it to ever be healed completely. Join me next time so we can talk about the arbitration and a deadly development in Arab history, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power. Mm-hmm.